Welcome to the Saturday morning meditation meetup. Um, I see, I think perhaps, I, I, can't, I can't remember, but I think I see one new face here. So uh, just FYI, if you have something to say that you don't want recorded, let me know and I'll pause the recording because this is being recorded. I don't share the videos, but um, in principle, I do put up the audios, although I'm way woefully behind on that. Um, and uh, I'm in the same time zone as Gilbert right now. Yeah. So, uh, oh, uh, so if you want to raise your hand to speak, uh, click on manage participants and then the middle button at the bottom of that says raise hand and that will indicate that you wish to speak. So does anybody want to raise their hand? Well, this was a quick meeting. There we go. <laughs> uh, what's the Gilbert and Ted time zone? California. Ah, okay. Yeah, California uh, yeah. standard time. Uh, I thought it'd be quicker just to raise my actual hand because I was looking for the button over here to raise hand. I didn't. Oh, there it is. Um, yeah, I was. I was wondering um, what. I know Chuladasa says that normally most people have a stronger. Uh, attention under normal circumstances than awareness. So our, our, our ability to focus, our, our ability to use our attention um, is already much stronger than our awareness. So we are working a lot on building our awareness um, during our sits. I was wondering what it would look like if that was flipped, whereas uh, your awareness is very strong, but your attention is very weak. And I'm starting to wonder if if I've, if I've made that flip myself in my meditation practice. So I was wondering if, if you have any ideas on what that might look like and uh, if that's even possible. It's definitely possible. Um, some people are that way naturally. Like it's not everybody who's, who's all attention focused, but um, it's, it's the most common mode for people to be in in our culture because we have a very attention oriented culture. Um, if you switch into more awareness and less attention, then uh, it can make uh, doing TMI practices challenging because uh, awareness just isn't like automatically what you're noticing, right? Um, so if you notice that you're, that you're having trouble like figuring out where your attention is, that can be an indication. Um, if you find yourself wandering through the world and you're really experiencing the world as sort of a fabric instead of as, as a thing that you're, you know, looking around in, um, that could be an indication. That's, that's kind of a, a very metaphoric way of putting it, but it's, I say this because I feel like I'm in awareness a lot. So I feel like I, I made that flip a, about two years ago and, and it hasn't flipped back, um, which isn't to say that I don't, find myself in attention, but, but, um, uh, but the, the general feeling is that things are just like more open and um, you're less likely to go like zoom in on something and stick to it. You're more likely to just be like aware of what's going on. And then when the need to zoom in on something and think about it happens, you zoom in. Um, but when you're in meditation, um, that experience of awareness tends to make it harder to notice when attention is wandering around. So. Yeah, that, that's kind of where I feel like a, 
the majority of the time I, 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 I sit in that area of having a larger awareness, but the attention is moved around a lot or I'm not aware even that the intention is moving a lot. It's yeah. just kind of around. So, and I, rem I remember when I kind of started TMI, it, it felt kind of the opposite way that my attention could stay and I could focus. Um, but the peripheral awareness was, was just not really there too much. And I, and I know I've mentioned in the, in our groups that, um, I've perceived kind of Nimita in terms of audio and uh, visual, and I still can't, can't get to that place. So I wonder if I'm perceiving more um, while my attention is kind of lagging behind. And I know uh, I've mentioned as well that a lot of times I can even stay in the four step transition for a real long time because I keep mind wandering, forgetting and going back to it. Um, so it's possible I'm just not training my attention as much as I did when I first started. Um, and it's kind of becoming weaker. Yeah. Um, I mean, one thing to do is, is, uh, like, you know how, I mean, we're, we're taught to, to, um, follow the breath at the nose. Um, and so in order to follow the breath at the nose, you have to find the breath at the nose, which when you have, when you're mostly attention focused, is pretty easy, right? Um, if you're mostly in awareness and it's difficult to scope attention deliberately, then that can be hard. So one of the things that, that I used to do, I don't do this as much anymore, but I used to do was um, actually just try to find attention in awareness the same way that I would find the nose in awareness. Um, and so in other words, add a step, like the step of finding attention because you know you can find it it's a little difficult sometimes because metacognitive awareness can feel a little bit like attention but it's not quite the same um, and i say this as if i am speaking authoritatively but just to be clear this is just my personal experience um so uh yeah you, um what you're describing is definitely a real phenomenon it's not just you and me i've had this conversation with other people i think you know gilbert gilbert and i talked about this a while back um Gilbert's actually suggested that I do some of the later stage practices, even though my attention doesn't seem to be all that stable, which kind of resonates because part of what may be going on is that you don't need attention to be stable to do the thing you're trying to do. And so it's just pointless. And so you might try doing something that requires attention to be stable in order to do, because then you'll notice if attention is stable. So just a thought. That would yeah, be no. I'm sorry, go ahead. I agree. I, I, I agree. I, I sort of experienced something similar. And um, yeah, that, uh, and actually the attempts and the times that I do to, to try to stabilize attention, um, it doesn't seem like there's any real benefit. And it's not that I can't use attention and focus on something, right? But I can't scope attention in the same way I used to. Um, and that seems to be a good thing <laughs> because the way you used to was, was just like um, almost getting so absorbed in the, that narrow scope and you would completely lose awareness. Um, and yeah, there, there, you, it, it does seem like the new way that's more awareness dominated, that there's more like a balance. And I don't, and I think um, just in my practice, it seems like there's more, um, 
benefits in, in, in doing that and being sort of awareness, you know, more sort of awareness dominated as you're, you know, as you're holding your attention, right. And trying to, to maintain, you know, the, the, the tensions of whatever your attentions are in your practice at that moment in time. Um, and would you say that if you're not using the, I, I guess, based on what Ted said, if you are not using the attention anymore to focus on something or in, in the later stages, what is that kind of like a less effort type situation? Is that what you mean, Ted, when you said you're using, not using it anymore, you don't need to use it anymore, the attention? No, it's Maybe not about that. effort. It's about, um, so one of the results of um, keeping your attention tightly scoped and on, for example, the breath, is that um, sort of the, the, the narrative mind, the voice that's always talking stops. Like if, if, if your attention is really, really stable on the breath, the, 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 that stops. Um, and so a lot of distractions like that tend to stop. Um, but if you're kind of in awareness, um, the, the, those distractions seem not to come up as much. Um, so like, you know, yesterday I was walking down a path and I was just noticing that there, and it was kind of funny, right? Cause there, it's actually like this mental, almost this, this mental conversation going on, but it's very quiet. Just noticing like, Oh, like I'm just walking on, on along the path. There's like nothing else going on, <laughs> you know, and, and that was going on. So there actually was something else going on, but, but you see what I mean? It's like, it's like sort of this weird shift that, 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 um, so I don't know if you're having that experience at all, but um, uh, if not, go on more walks. Yeah, I actually do go for walks, but maybe I'm usually listening to something, so maybe I'll. Uh, oh yeah, turn off the music, down. man. Turn it off. Yeah. Just be. <laughs> okay. Seriously, I know that sounds a little bit like, but uh, try it. Just go for a walk and just be. Anyway, okay. Tom, you have your hand up. Yeah, I wanted to hear more about how uh, metacognitive awareness can be like attention. And you said that they're not quite the same. So what are the similarities and differences? Can you just talk about that? I don't know that I can necessarily tell you something useful about it. I mean, you've heard, you've heard sort of the standard spiel on it from the TMI teachings, which is that you know, metacognitive introspective awareness sort of feels like you're watching awareness um, or watching attention or watching the mind generally. Yeah. Um, and so if you think about that, it sort of feels like, uh, you know, there's a witness that's out here and there's all of the stuff that's going on in the mind. One of the things that's going on in the mind is attention, right? And the witness is seeing all of these things and aware of them. And it kind of, it kind of feels the way that I used to use, like the way that I used to use attention, but it's not as, it's not focused. Like there isn't like, it's not, it's not leaving anything out. It's not, it's not separating things out. It's, it's, it's more like a lamp that's shining on all of what's in awareness. Um, 
rather than a spotlight that's shining on a tiny part of awareness. Um, but this is just the experience that I'm having. And I'm not saying that that's the way it should be or that it's correct. Um, so part of, I think part of the benefit of, of, of sitting around in a circle like this and talking about our experiences is that, that, you know, that what I said may not be exactly what Chuladasa is describing when he means metacognitive introspective awareness, but if we all talk about what our experiences are, we can often benefit from it. I kind of have the sense that it's always slightly behind. It's like whatever is happening happens, and then there's a moment of awareness but that puts it all together. Hmm. That makes sense. That sounds more like attention than awareness. Um, I don't know if that's actually true. Certainly Chuladasa says that. He says that the attention tends to be behind and awareness tends to be right there. So attention is noticing the, what's been assembled, whereas awareness is just aware of whatever is. But that, that's, I don't, I don't, Chuladasa stated that fairly unequivocally at one point in the book, but, but I don't actually have a personal opinion on whether that's correct. Um, okay. It's just something. Well, I was at. thinking of the moment, mind moments model also and how they're oh, minding yeah. put things together. Right. Yeah, sure. Um, in that sense, uh, th that makes sense as a model. I mean, I don't know that that's really the way I experience it. Hmm. But if, well, if you're, I don't mean to say that if you're experiencing it that way, you're wrong. That's just. Uh, I'm, I don't, I'm not sure how I'm experiencing it. That's kind of what I'm interpreting or okay. that's kind of how I'm envisioning my experience. Go, you said you were going to say something, Gilbert. Yeah. So, um, you know, I kind of came to this realization. It was on a Goenka retreat where all you're doing is body scanning. Um, and that's where I think, you know, that, that this, I believe stream entry happened for me. Um, but cause afterwards, um, I kind of realized that, um, you know, something was different. I was trying to think what, what was, it's clear something is different. What are the things that's different? And one of those things that was different was as I was scanning, even though you're focusing on different parts of the body, there was a way that like I was, even if I was focused on my hand, I would be, um, you know, aware of the sensations of my hand, but then there was like some way that before I was, um, you know, darting back and forth between my hand and somewhere in my head and like putting them together. And there was a sense that like, you know, I was scanning from the head to the body and then like shifting back and forth. Um, because then afterwards you'd have the experience of weight, you know, um, and it, when my constant, when my, uh, yeah, I was really concentrated and stuff. That whole, even experiencing, you know, in the scene, just the scene, right? In the hearing, just the heard. Um, and, and you were just there with what was without, you know, all these different ways of kind of what you're talking about, I think, at least what I was thinking, Tom, that you're talking about, um, putting extra pieces together, right? Like putting, uh, you know, you could, you could say uh, putting some more, would have different parts of what you see as the ego in comparison to what you're, you're experiencing. Cause that is another thing that does often get con constructed and added on to an experience. 
um, you know, always adding in that, that I as you're experiencing things. And then over time, you start to realize more and more that, wait, I don't have to put, um, make, you know, everything sort of self-referential. Did you, do you remember that video that Daniel Ingram did about like, I don't know, six months ago, he was like dressed in a black outfit and he looked really kind of like monkish and, and it was, it was kind of awesome. Um, and he the was floating talking head. about the floating head. Exactly. And he was talking about this exact thing. Um, it might be, do you know, do you guys know what I'm talking about? Tom, do you? Yeah. Yeah. I think. Yeah. You should check that video out. Cause he speaks to exactly this point in that video. And he talks about his experience of shifting from experiencing things sort of afterwards to it's all like not being, nothing being interposed between what's happening and what's, uh, what's being experienced. Thank you, Laura. Oh, yeah, cool. Thank you, Laura. Strangely because enough, I just watched that video. <laughs> yeah, isn't that um, a fun video? Yeah, it's, it's a great video and a really good explanation of being the sensation without any, and I think that's when there's no behind, like there's no feeling of any kind of behind, like what you're saying, Tom, but um, yeah, it's a great video. Very intense eye contact. <laughs> From yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was definitely in a fun place when he when he did that video. Yeah. <laughs> John. Thank. Yeah. Um. Can you hear me? Yep. Yeah. Um, so, a, a, a kind of a basic question. Um, I, I, so I set an intention, uh, intention to um, keep my attention on my nose and keep it, and keep awareness alive and keep you know that's that stuff there. Um, so my question is, um, I, I am, I feel like sometimes that I'm in this constant mode of checking in. Uh, I can almost, I feel like sometimes I'm just doing it constantly. Yeah. So I. Uh, so I kind of back off and say, okay, I'm not going to think about it anymore. And then, then I'll, I'll check in periodically. Is, is that the right approach to this? Yes, that is exactly the right approach. You want to check in as infrequently as you can. Okay. You want to check in enough that you're, that you're catching yourself before you're just like falling asleep or whatever, whatever's going wrong. Right. But you don't want to check in more often than that because every check-in is a distraction. So, so yeah, when you're checking in continuously, it's like you're distracted all the time, which is, you know, it, it sort of feels like you're doing a great job when you check in continuously because you're able to keep right on target. But the problem is that the check-ins themselves become the distraction. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. Thank you. Anybody else? analogy come up that I want to check out it, from what John was saying and the way you responded sounds like writing a skateboard and you kick and you want that the momentum of that kick to last as long as possible yeah. before you kick again so the kick is like a check in yeah not, not a metaphor that, that uh 
really like when you get to stage seven, you know, what you're doing is you're trying to just let go and not check in um, and still have it work. My internet connection appears to be a little bit bad. So I apologize if I'm choppy. Well, I don't have any questions, but I was just going to comment on the um, what we're talking about, like having the the um, sort of the binding moments of like having the self like look at the hand, like yeah. I think you, normally, I think most of the time, you f people feel like um, you're like doing something, like oh, I'm moving attention to the hand, I'm moving attention to the foot, and if you really like put awareness on like where you think the self is, you could you could almost like feel a flash of it, like. Like, um, so it's like, as you're putting attention, like from the hand to the foot, you'd actually feel like, oh, there's like sensation somewhere over here that like flashes. And then it's, then it feels like, oh, this thing moved this to here. And it's, it's, it's very interesting to see. There's like, a, and then there's some sort of, sort of binding that happens. And I think yeah, that's I what, mean, I, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. No, I was, I was like, I think that was what Dale Ingram was referring to. And like, I think if you do it enough times or like fast enough, like it normally feels like the sensations over here, like own other sensations or are controlling other sensations. But if like over time, you, it's sort of like, it's like a, it flips or it doesn't, well, it doesn't flip around, but it's like, these are just other sensations too. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I was actually playing with that in meditation the last couple of days, realizing that, that you know, I tend to think of like the, the watcher as being something other than just another thing, right? Like the, the, the idea that there's a watcher there is actually just another, like it, it's, no, it's no different, it's no, no less a mental construct than any other mental construct. Yeah, and I think like a lot of times, um the sensations over here are just like very fuzzed out. They're just like very, very blurred out. And so it's like very, very subtle and it's very, very hard to catch. And I think there, there, but then there are also moments when it becomes like very, very clear and it's almost like hard to miss, but I don't know, like, uh, think, uh, some people like point to the progress of insight and say like there are various stages where like you experience things differently, but I don't really know. Yeah. So what I think you're saying is that the idea of awareness as a container for sensation is really just another sensation. Yep. And not just that, but the idea that there's a place in awareness where things are being seen from. That's just another sensation or just yeah. another. Well, it's, it's, it's another mental construct. I mean, calling it a sensation, you know, okay, that works, but you, you don't really need to call it a sensation. It's just a, another thing that's another, another thing another that's illusion. Yeah, another thing that is happening. Right. I, I almost, sorry, go ahead. Oh, see, it's also an ordering principle. You know, not to say that like it's the, on, it's the only thing that you need. Like it, it brings, or, I mean, yeah, things are organized around it. That's another way of yes, That's a good that. way to put it. Exactly. Yeah. 
doesn't mean you need to have it organized in that way, but things are organized around it. And it's sort of, that's, that's kind of big reasons why you sort of, you can take some of that away and people are like, oh my God, what's happening? Yeah. Yeah, I will say like, there's like the physical part, physical sensations and the mental, um, sort of the mental uh, thoughts or whatever you call it, like the stamps. And like, um, yes, like there's the mental construct that gets like projected into the, the, the mind or the awareness. And then, but there's also the physical um, component of it. Like, uh, which is, I guess what Gilbert and I were talking about and Ted were talking about like the flashes. And then those two together almost make up something very solid. My um, opinion about what you what was just said is that that's a good uh, indication for why um, body scanning and uh, techniques that use things other than the uh, point where the breath is at the nose, because we are um, you know there's a lot of mental constructs going on and. If we start, we're embodied, and if we start to use our body um, in the ways that we're, we're just being mentioned to help uh, notice uh, awareness and attention, I, I think it's a very positive thing, and I think it helps us to uh, uh, get out of just uh, the narrative mind and uh, uh, let us uh, use uh, sensations more to help us uh, be, uh, it's easier to be um, transparent maybe to the moment uh, when you're uh, working with sensations instead of uh, uh, the narrative mind. Yep. Yeah. Also, if you look at some of the uh, some of the practices like headless way, uh, they go even beyond that, right? Like not just using sensations in the body, but but using the whole world and like you know. Noticing, noticing the lack of, of uh, um, the lack of clear separation um, between you know the sensations that we associate with the body and the other sensations that we associate with not the body. So, in other yeah, words, I you go from head to body, and then from body to world. One with um, becoming more embodied, becoming more aware of the body, particularly aware of the body from the inside, so to speak, right? And the more you can just merge with those sensations just to feel, um, you know, that's another way of putting that, it just being more and more deeply in your body as opposed to disembodied because that's that seems to be like the default that we start out with is just being you know pretty disembodied from actual i mean we'll be aware of it when you know maybe something really bad's going on or something really like good or something but otherwise we kind of just ignore it ignore it ignore it ignore it um and so the more that you sort of get in touch with your body um you know moment to moment basis that's also actually part, a big part, it seems, of a path of purification, right? Because it's, it's the body 
<laughs> where you experience, um, you know, so much discomfort, right? I mean, these things that, oh, I don't like this sensation. I don't like this. I don't like that. I want this. I want this and that. Um, things are more visceral with the body. Um, and so it's, it's good. And there's, there's a, you know, a ton of very, very good work, uh, sort of just working on being more and more embodied. I was wondering if I could bring up, cause Gilbert mentioned the, you mentioned the Goenka retreat and I don't think you were here last week. Um, cause I signed up for one in uh, about a month and a half. Um, and I was asking if there's any tips or what people thought about, um, what I've been talking about in terms of the stage I'm at and what I'm struggling with, if it's good to just spend the 10 days doing the Vipassana practice, um, just to see where that takes me. I was wondering um, what you thought about that Gilbert or anybody else who, who wasn't here last week. My basic advice is, you know, just, uh, Try to make yourself as, you know, mentally, emotionally prepared for the treat, retreat as you can. Take, you know, uh, don't have things that you're going to be worried about during the retreat. Um, and, yeah, should me try, you know, for, yeah. And it's, it's one of those things you can't really prepare for. It's, you know, because it's, it's so intense. Um, and... Yeah, just do your best. Take care of yourself. I mean, if it comes, you know, if it worst comes to worst, it, it starts getting too too intense. You can you can back out, right? That's as in like even midway through or something. Um, but yeah. When you say don't have anything you're worried about, are you? Do you mean don't leave anything? What emotionally? Uh, uh, open or uh, before you go or just think like don't leave the garage door open or <laughs> well yeah no solve all your psychological issues before you go on this going go retreat right yeah no um i mean sure just do it if you can um just take care of take care of the stuff you need to do to prepare early um as opposed to last minute um <laughs> yeah uh, I remember I, I used to do uh, Tibetan retreats and, and those you do by yourself. And I would several times I found myself shopping for retreat supplies at two in the morning, the day that the retreat was supposed to start. Yeah. Don't do that. <laughs> it's kind of a rite of passage though. Well, I mean, one of the things about um, doing, like a 10-day Goenka retreat or anything like that is that there tends to be, um, there tend to be purifications that happen in the retreat. I remember the first time I did a retreat with Chula Dasa, about three or four days into the retreat, I was really discouraged. Like just, I wanted to leave the retreat so badly. The only thing that kept me in the retreat was wondering how it would affect Andrea if I left. Um, and so, and that was enough to keep me in the retreat. And the next day was blissful and wonderful. So, you know, if you find yourself in that situation, I'm not saying like, you know, pedal to the metal, you know, don't, don't, uh, 
don't take care of yourself by all means. I'm like on that day, I was actually like, I, I did a very light practice day that day and that was fine. Um, I think that was exactly the right thing to do. So if you find yourself in that place, don't feel like you have to be a hard ass, but at the same time, you know, you don't have to leave necessarily either. I mean, if you really think you have to leave, leave, but, but, um, but uh, you know, a lot of times that kind of, that kind of experience is very similar to the experience when you're like, you know, when you're first getting into stage three, stage four territory and you're, you know, 48 minutes into the sit and there's just this little part of you that desperately wants to get up off the cushion and it's just going like up, up, up now, up now. <laughs> Pretty familiar. I'm familiar with that little part of me. Yes. Yes. I think we all are. <laughs> and so you just have to keep sitting. Well, and I guess, yeah, one other thing I would say is if you can do a fair amount, uh, a lot of meta practice before, I would say that's good. Very, mm. very good. Um, because yeah, a strong meta practice seems to really like it increases in some sense, the resiliency and the flexibility of the mind and it's able to just handle purifications better. It doesn't get stuck and you're, you're less likely to, you know, beat yourself up about things or it seems you're, you're less likely to sort of have maybe an attitude of striving um, because those, that doesn't make sense if you have an attitude of kind friendliness towards all things or to, or even as you're working towards developing that, um, you start to see um, there just are ways of approaching life and experience that just it don't make sense. And, and you, when something doesn't make sense, you don't do it. But like, yeah, when and I say doesn't make sense, like even at, at the full intuitive level, then yeah, you won't do it. If like your, your, um, you know, your body mind system is like, yeah, huh? Yeah, it doesn't make sense anymore. Thanks. I think that it kind of speaks to something that I wish I knew before doing the Goenka retreats, because I think if you go in without being aware of that feeling, you do have a, well, I did anyway, a very striving attitude and kind of a hardline attitude. Like, and I, and I wish Goenka would explain this better on the retreat that um, you create so much mental suffering on the retreat because you're a little bit pissed about your progress and I think like and it's easy to say that now because we all understand that that's not something that we should do right but when you're in an intense retreat like that I think it it can up that um kind of capacity to do that a little bit and to really remind yourself of those simple TMI things of okay this is happening I've now got awareness that it's happening pat myself on the back and move on and, and keep that practice throughout because purity, impurities will probably start popping up and they might, you know, might start to feel a bit tricky and just, all right, let's see how long this will last. Um, because just following Goenka, I think it can get a little bit kind of suffering heavy in a weird way, like unnecessarily so. And I, I've got a lot out of those retreats, but um, that, little, that little bit 
extra just helps a hell of a lot. I think. Well, and I think that's because of the psychology, like the Western sort of psychology of our makeup um, that, yeah, he might not understand because he's, you know, he's, he's not a Westerner. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, with those, I guess as many Westerners, we hear it, like, it sounds, oh man, intense. You got to be like tough and, 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 and hard. And, and then, so it does seem to encourage like striving and, and do it right. But then within that is just this, you know, subtle or sometimes not so subtle, just kind of negativity, subtle aggression. Um, it's, it's a basic attitude. Um, yeah, that we just, we tend to have different ways, this, this ill will, this, this aggression or something. Um, and, and maybe it's like, okay, it's, it's only directed at, you know, a few different areas, but a commonplace, you know, it's, it's almost always directed sort of at ourselves. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one way that I talk about that, which, which I think I find helpful, I don't know if, if, if others will, is that um, there's like who I am, like, like what my current state is, right? And then there's who I think I ought to be. And there's probably also who I think I am, which is, which is probably even worse than my current state, right? But, but be that as it may, there's who I think I ought to be. And this is like a, a model that I make in my mind of who I ought to be. And I'm constantly comparing myself to that model. Of course, the model isn't me. And so naturally, uh, the comparison always falls short. Like, like I should be able to, you know, uh, make sure that the kitchen is clean every day or, or, you know, I should be able to meditate single pointedly or I should be able to enter jhana at will or whatever it is that I'm supposed to be able to do. And, uh, and then there's a tendency to try to force the real me into that mold. And I think that that's where a lot of that um, sort of anger or, or hatred or self-criticism or however it manifests, I think, is, is from that process of comparing. And the more that you can just be like, okay, this is what's happening right now. You know, and, and like, cause you know, I think it helps to notice that, that, that modeling happening because, because then you can actually, even if it's happening, you can be like, Oh, okay. I'm modeling right now. All right, fine. I know what's going on, but. That's a, that, that's a good point. Um, go ahead, Gilbert. I'd like to hear what you have to say. No, it's just that do, do people even know what it feels like to be just have that, kind friendliness towards oneself that compassion like true compassion not not some type of like pitying because that's what we think i think uh starting out like what that compassion is or that kindness we think it's some type of pitying or um oh yeah yeah just give it what it give give yourself what it wants i don't know just it's not a helpful model but we don't know what it you know what it means to just have that kind friendliness or even love um, where you respect yourself, um, you know, you, you know that, uh, you deserve happiness or just, yeah. And, and not to say that you're going to, you know, all of a sudden, you know, you wake up when, well, you could actually, <laughs> but <laughs> when you're practicing, um, it's not like, you know, when you're practicing, you're like, okay, yeah, I got it. Flip the switch. Just no, but it is something that you build on and you, you practice on growing and then, there are moments where you can really like wake up and be like, Oh my God, 
yeah, what, what was I doing? Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's a great point, Ted. Um, I haven't really thought about it that way, but I, I do that a lot modeling where I should be, where I want to be, where I think I should be versus where I am. Yeah. But, uh, and, and another thing I wanted to mention was I'm, I'm glad Laura and Gilbert that you brought up the being mindful of the striving nature that might come from the retreat. I think I was already getting into that mindset um, based on talking to some other people, especially um, someone I know who went to one said, you know, he was really discouraged by the fourth day. And then he's like, kind of like decided, yeah, I'm halfway through it. I'm not going to quit in the middle of it. And then I was starting to think, yeah, I need to develop that kind of, kind of like sit and do it mentality where I just stick it out, you know, even during my meditations. And I think that that might have a little aggressive nature in it as well. So that's something, even though it's great to be diligent, um, just not to, to, to be like, maybe to watch out for that a little, a little bit. So I'm glad that you, you two brought that up as well. There's, there's also like the expectation side of a retreat, depending on how busy your life is and you get these 10 days and you're like, okay, I'm going to go for it in these 10 days. Yeah. And I'm going to like, and yeah, you can, you know, make a goal, but the expectation, uh, yeah. Just I'm going to get to stage 12. Yeah. <laughs> Just diligence without expectation is like my goal. Yeah. Yeah. Christoph, you had your hand up earlier. Did you did you want to say something? Uh yeah. Um I just I was just um I, I wrote everything down because I'm trying to to uh, make it nice and uh uh structured. Um yeah, so first of all, I wanted to thank Richard again. Like, yeah, I was freaking out a bit yesterday, and then I wrote on the on, the, on Reddit, and he gave me a very, very uh, thoughtful and nice, nice reply, which I've tried to follow yesterday evening. Like, I, I'm still having this huge knot in my stomach. I think I described that already a few weeks back. Um, so yeah, this this purification thing we called it a purification last time is still going on. Um, during the night, it was there and it was especially present. And I yeah, I I sort of like tried to to um, yeah to go by Richard's advice and to really just observe it with as much meta as I could muster, which has been really beneficial. Like. I really, really start feeling the benefits of meta practice because like this, before it was like, I observed it and, and after a certain time, there has been some sort of aversion sneaking from the background. Like I observed it and everything was fine, but after a few minutes, I started like, oh no, 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 no. And the obsession train started again. So um, yeah, like tonight I, I observed it and I could really feel like the, the matter that was going on while observing it. And this sort of like caused the, this knot to, to disperse into the rest of the body, which was a very, very positive experience, I would say. Um, however, today, like my, my pulse is still very high. Like I can feel my, my heart, like in my whole body. Like, and um, yeah. 
those are thoughts again, but I think that there's like still material that has not yet uh, penetrated into into consciousness. Like there's still maybe some subconscious fear, or maybe it's just a remnant of all this stress that has been going on in the last few weeks that is somehow still affecting my body. Um, yeah, there's another very interesting symptom that I wanted to ask you guys about. And that is like those tears that are coming up, like randomly through the day, I have like tears coming up into my eyes. And I've noticed that my mind, uh, my, my body seems to, to, to repress them by blinking. Like I get the, the, the tears come up and if I blink, they, they go down again. If I keep my eyes up, which can be a bit uh, difficult sometimes, but if, if I keep my eyes open and I allow those tears to come out, it feels really, really good. But I somehow really have to force myself to do it. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's a very strange phenomenon. Like there are tears coming up and as soon as the tears come, I start blinking. And I've really noticed that this seems to push them back down. And yeah, I was wondering if anyone had any experience, any, any one of you had any experience with something like that. Because like, if, if I'm able to cry and let them out, like I, I feel really good. I even sometimes get a bit hypomanic, like, oh, this is so great, this is so great. Uh, I feel so much better, et cetera, et cetera. And um, yeah, I, I was wondering if anyone maybe had any, any feedback on, yeah, how to proceed. Yeah, one last question is like, yesterday, I like during the last few weeks, I tried, I really tried to sort of like ignore the, this, this pressure, like leave it in awareness, focus on the breath, as long as I could focus on the breath, like keep it in awareness. Like yesterday, I, I specifically made it the object of my attention and this really seemed to help. Um, so I'm wondering like, how do I asked this question already last time, but how do I know when I should like keep something in awareness or make it the object of my attention? Because that, that is something that's really, yeah, it's really difficult for me to, to, to differentiate maybe because of my, yeah, my obsessive nature. Yeah. That so, was a lot of talking. Sorry. <laughs> that's all right. So uh, a couple of things. Um, as when you have a very clear sensation of some kind of knot or something like that, I think that's actually a, a good indication that you can turn your attention to it. If it was like more of a, a, a memory or something like that, then it might be better to just let it go. Mm -hmm. But if it's actually a feeling of like a physical, like energetic knot, then putting your attention on it. Um, and, and this is actually fairly consistent with stuff that I've heard Chula Dasa say too. So I don't think I'm, going off the reservation here, um, putting your attention on it, um, particularly as you were saying, if you can bring a feeling of love or compassion, even a little bit, or, or even just a feeling of like uh, pleasantness, um, what you don't want to do is get sucked into the ball and become part of it. Like that's yeah. not going to help you at all. But if you're able to maintain uh, an objective stance as you keep it in attention, um, then then the kinds of releases that you describe can happen. Uh, not necessarily, it doesn't always release uh, in the way that you described. Um, that, like, that's the great outcome when that happens. Sometimes the way it releases is it just loosens up a little bit. And even that is a good outcome. 
right? Like mm -hmm. it doesn't it doesn't have to be all or nothing. So that's one thing to say. The other thing I wanted to ask you, um, because I want to use this as a metaphor, if you if it, if it works, have you ever had a pet? Yeah, yeah, I have a dog. <laughs> okay. Do you have you ever like just held your dog? Like uh, when your dog was upset or something, just like held it in your arms and felt it as a, as a little being? Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay, so um, there's another being in your apartment just like that. And it's you. Yeah. And um, you may find that uh, if, you, if you look for it, that you can actually feel your body the same way that you feel your dog's body. Mm-hmm. So, so see if you can feel that sense of, the, of your body as just an animal that's there with you, like, like that you're holding. Like your, your mind, I don't mean to say that you need to feel separate from it, but just like try to get that, the same sense of, of like holding your body that you get when you hold your dog, when you're comforting your dog or taking comfort from your dog. Mm -hmm. um, hold your body in that same way. And um, just like feel your heart beating, feel your lungs moving, feel your breath moving in and out. Just the muscles, the, 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 you know, the, the, the physicalness, um, the, the, the little animal being that, that is your body. Because, because you know, we, we tend to be very cerebral and we tend to be very theoretical and very in the mind. And um, if you can just like be in touch with the animal, and, and, you know, yes, there is a mind, there, there is thinking, but, but see if you can turn your awareness and your attention to the, the body and the, the animal and that, that little creature that is, that is in the world, you know, and, and, um, and could use that same feeling of contact and comfort that your dog gets from you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I see. Okay, yeah, that's an interesting suggestion. Like uh, that, that could be like an everyday practice. Like during the day, yeah. I do like check-ins check like that. Or yeah, I also I also do this when I'm going to sleep and I find myself having trouble sleeping. Okay, interesting. Yeah, because like you know that feeling of being under the covers, warm, curled up, like like you're. It, it's a very physical thing, and it's a great time to get in touch with your body. If you can do it when you're walking around, that's good too. But but. Um, but the more, you're, the more you're in a comfortable place, this is what I'm really trying to get that feeling of like comfort. You wanna, you wanna have this happen in a, in a place where there's a lot of comfort and really just like notice how much uh, of an animal you are. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, thank you. That's a great suggestion. I'll, I'll try that. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. Is there a, a line where you try to um decide where, um, you know, purifications are psychological problems or where you, I don't say that I know there's no sign, like, a, you know, sign there, but are there, um, you know, are there little, um, you know, warnings or indications or things that people should be aware of that, uh, you know, it's not something that we should just, uh, you know, focus on or it's a purification or ignore or let go or that it's something you know something that needs to to have some uh, intervention yeah i mean you sometimes like you know this idea of having an objectivity about your 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 purification sometimes you can't have that objectivity all right it's just not available to you 
And when that's the case, whether it's because you're just not at stage four yet or whether it's because stage four isn't good enough and it's not actually helping, um, that's when it's good to, to find someone who can perform the function of being objective about what's going on for you. Um, so, uh, and, and, you know, it's challenging because not every therapist is actually going to be able to do that for you. But if you can find someone who's able to do that for you and you need them to do that, the, 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 the clue that you need them to do that is that when you try to be objective, you fail. Right. And, and, and you, you don't make progress. And, and maybe like if you put your attention on whatever it is, it just blows up in your face and you're not able to cope. That's, you should definitely get help when that happens. Yeah. I mean, there could be, potentially there could be chemical imbalances that you're, you know, you're not aware of yeah. or like you can't be objective. So you need to think that it's, yeah. I appreciate that. That's a good, uh, good way of yeah. saying it. Sure. You need an objective observer. So that's great. Yeah. Well, this is also why Sangha is good. But Chuladasa has a rule. When you go into a meditation retreat at his retreat center, you sign a paper saying, if you are on medication during at the beginning of the retreat, you will stay on medication for the duration of the retreat. You will not come off the meditation during the retreat just because you're having a good experience in meditation. So, yeah, it's very important to, to not get confused between like what meditation will do for you and what it won't. Mm -hmm. and I'll, very quickly, on the tears walling up, I've had actually had that experience in the past few days. Uh, I'll just mention it briefly um, to give another, you know, take on it. I did not uh, get into a little cuddly shell and, and love myself, but I, maybe I should have. Um, I'm sorry, Ted. Just couldn't, couldn't, couldn't <laughs> help. Uh, so anyway, so recently um, my granddaughter mentioned how much, you know, what does she want? She doesn't want toys or that. She wants to go visit museums. So I have a um, really bad back problems that I'm going to have to have a major surgery on. And, and um, you know, I can't really walk any distance and couldn't really take her to the museum. So, so... So you try and push the tears down because that's what a man does. Thanks. Yeah. Well, and one, one thing I want to say is that, you know, a lot of what this practice is, is, is what, what it's trying to teach us is to soften, right? To soften in, in many ways, to soften into, uh, compassion to soften into love to realize that we don't have to avoid you know aspects of experience like experience doesn't have to be so threatening right we don't have to defend ourselves from things that may happen we don't have to defend ourselves from feelings and thoughts um and that the more we do that um the more we are present and the more we are alive, right? So, yeah. And, and this is something that we're heading in directions that, um, you know, we don't have a lot of good models out there. Like we don't see that many people. It's not that no one's doing this stuff. I mean, there are people even from other traditions, right? Who, 
are trying to be more present, to be more fully with experience. Um, and those are the people we admire, right? Those are the people we, we admire, but um, it's hard when, when you yourself are, are going through it. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to, 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 to open up, to soften, um, because we think and feel like, oh, it's gonna be too overwhelming. And sometimes it is overwhelming, right? And that's why other people can be very helpful. And that's also why or when, you know, we can, we can titrate, we can sort of take breaks. Like, let me go for a walk right now. I just need to go for a walk. And, you know, I'm not really me consciously focusing on meditating. I'm just gonna walk around somewhere. Anyway, yeah, that's what I wanted to share. Mm. Yeah, thanks a lot. Um, do you, uh, like, I, I've been in psychoanalytic therapy for a year now, um, and uh, another teacher in training, like, suggested that that might not be the best kind of therapy to, to handle such, uh, such um, symptoms, however you wanna, may, may want to call them. Um, yeah, like, in combination with what you said, Ted, about the you need someone else to be objective about uh, this, maybe in therapy. Do you have any ideas or um, about which kind of therapy could be helpful for such uh, such symptoms, instances, however you want to call it? So I can tell you things that people have told me have worked for them. Um, I've heard a lot of good things about internal family system therapy. Um, there's also uh, a process called uh, uh, gosh, I'm blanking on the name. I, I, I want to say depth-oriented brief therapy, uh, but I'm probably getting it wrong. Um, if you send me some email, I'll try and track some stuff down for you because it's a, it's a really good question, and there are some interesting things. There have been some. There's been some research recently that's shown that 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 some of the some of the therapy, like when you have a breakthrough during during um, uh, regular psychoanalysis, um, there's a there's a way that that process happens, and uh, there's been a bunch of research that's been done literally in the last like ten years that's that's shown some some interesting. Uh, uh, avenues for, for uh, exploration that, that, uh, that uh, have been surprisingly effective. Um, so, so send me some email. You have my email address? Uh, no, not yet. Is, is, it, is it on your uh, website? Uh, well, the website has a contact form, but I'll just put it in here. Um, okay. If you yeah. the, the reminder emails, you can get to them that way. I've sent an email. Uh by replying to one of those. Okay, yeah. thank you. So, yeah, um, I, so I wanna get to, to Nish before we continue with this because he's been waiting for a long time. Uh, but this is a really good topic to, to, to talk about. I mean, it's, it's like, we have a huge problem in our society with, with uh, not being permitted to be kind to ourselves, to be quite frank. So anyway, but Nish, let's, let's talk about, uh, what you've got. Hello. Hi. Uh, I wanted to ask a question about the right approach to returning attention to the meditation object when you notice mm -hmm. that it's wandered off. So 
what usually happens during my set is I'll hold these intentions to remain aware, separate intentions for extrospective and introspective awareness, and then I'll direct my attention. And at some point I notice a distraction, and this distraction hasn't totally captured my attention yet fully, but I feel it come up and then I, I kind of briefly observe the contents of the distraction. Like say I realize that there's a distraction, I'm thinking about this errand I have to run or my groceries or something. And then in returning my attention back to the meditation object, I, I do the whole kind of setup process again. So release attention from the distraction, fully reset, renew both my intentions for awareness, and then return the attention back. And, and that process in itself, feels kind of disruptive and it, it it disrupts me more than the distraction had at the point that I noticed it. And I was wondering if, you know, there's a, there's a better approach I should be taking, whether I should be trying to speed it up over time and, and not do the full reset, all my intentions from scratch thing each time. Your instincts yeah. are dead on. <laughs> That's exactly right. Um, so the, um, the, the reason why you would do it the way that you're doing it now is that you need to, right? Like that's how much you, that's how much you need to put into it to make it work. And, and at the beginning of the process, that is what you need to do. So, so you were doing it right. It's not a wrong practice. It's just that you don't need to do that practice anymore. So now the practice that you probably want to do is just, you know, you don't have to do anything about the distraction, the distraction, you've noticed the distraction, um, and so you just go back to the breath um, and, uh, and see what happens, right? And if, if you need to add more than that, add more than that. But just, just don't, don't feel like you have to add any more than you need to add. Like when you're, when you're in stage four and you notice a subtle distraction, if your mind is able to just go right back to the object, all you really need to do um, to reinforce that, and you don't actually need to do anything at all, but, but you know, have an intention to just be satisfied like when that happens, because that's great. That's what you wanted to have happen. So, so and you don't, you don't need to like stop and like be satisfied. You just like, you know, if, if you, you know, if you go back to the object and you don't think about it, that's fine too. You know, it, it's it, the, the amount of effort to put in is the amount that's needed and no more. Do I need, do you think I should hold an intention to, because my mind kind of automatically feels that I need to do something and. Yes. Right. Do I need, so this, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, I mean, it's stage seven. You actually have to really work with that obstacle, but at this point you probably, you probably don't, but that's okay. Um, you know, yeah. If you feel like you need to do something, just notice that you feel like you need to do something. It's just another distraction. I mean, you don't even need to do the noticing. You are noticing that you need to do something, that you, that you feel like you need to do something. So just like, yeah, okay, I, I feel like I need to do something. Yeah, <laughs> that's all. I can treat the noticing like a distraction. Okay, that's cool. I'll try that, thanks. Yeah, yeah I mean, noticing is a distraction. It's, it's a useful distraction at a certain point in your practice, but at some point you have to let go of it. Cool, so, thank you. Yeah. So anyway, um, yeah, I mean, on the topic of, of um, you know, how to, how to be a man in the world, which is something that I think, you know, all of the, all of the men sitting here have probably struggled with at one point or another. 
um, it can come in, in many different forms and, and you just have to like, it is absolutely necessary to feel the feeling. You can't deal with it without feeling it. And um, if you aren't able to give yourself permission to feel the feeling when somebody's looking, go feel the feeling privately, but let yourself feel the feeling. And, you know, like Steve, what you did just, just now when you were talking about the situation with your, with your granddaughter, where you were just like, okay, I need to back away from the camera and just like feel this. And then I'll, when I'm done feeling it, I'll come back to the camera. That's exactly the right way to do it. You know, if you can, it's, it's, there are so many different layers to this too. Like, like, um, because you know that's what men do that's our responsibility in society we are the ones who are responsible for making everything work now of course that's not to say that that's the way uh women see us <laughs> but that's that's the that's what that's kind of like that's what i was trained to do like i'm supposed to know all the answers to every question i'm supposed to be able to to do whatever is needed and you know i don't actually know the answer to every question like like one of the things that that uh I had to unlearn, uh, which I don't think I fully unlearned, is if you don't know the answer to a question, say you don't know the answer to the question. Don't make up an answer. <laughs> um, so like there's all of, like it's not even just, just the emotions, it's like all of these things that we're expected to do and we have to kind of, especially when we're trying to practice the Eightfold Path, like one of the things about the Eightfold Path is not lying. Well, if you answer a question that you don't know the answer to, that's a lie. Right. So, yeah, but and I use that example because it's kind of less, less uh, challenging, but it's obvious. Right. So anyway. Um, hey. Yeah. On that topic, I just thought it was, I think Gilbert mentioned like uh, yeah, Goenka is not a Westerner. Like I, I think I read recently, like the, even the Western psyche has only our current model of the world sort of, has only been around for like 200 years. And like before that, like, yeah, there is this idea of like free will and all this, these things, but they're sort of like an, they're, they're sort of like an expression of like God or something. But anyway, like uh, the, the Western psyche sort of evolved over time. And now I think we're sort of at this place where like, uh, yeah, we, we are the, the agent behind like all our decisions. Like we have free will and like you, you could sort of see that in, like a lot of books and stories, like um, they change over time a lot. The, the culture we're just in is so different from like the Eastern cultures and even the, the Western cultures like a few hundred years ago. And it does seem that together with that, we, we bring like, a, we put a lot of responsibility on ourselves. And if something's not working, it's like a, we're, we're doing a bad job or something like that. And so, yeah, I, I do think uh, like a lot of, self-care and those things are needed and yeah speaking as, as a guy too like i think it's normally like uh for guys like you're able to feel certain emotions in certain situations and in certain situations you're not allowed to feel certain emotions or there are certain other feelings that you're just not even supposed to be feeling and just like softening up to those other dimensions that you could have been like pushing away for a while it's like it takes a while to sort of get used to and 
I don't know, like uh, every, every now and then I sort of discover something new and I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe uh, I've been doing this for so long. Like, uh, yeah, like that. Yeah, I was at the airport last weekend um, and there were a couple of guys from, I think, Polynesia or something like that. And um, they were, they were like, they were behaving in ways that really triggered me. Like one of them was like dancing around to some music and, and like just being very free and, and like emotional in, in a way that just seemed totally wrong to me. And it was really interesting to watch my reaction to this guy. And it was actually really informative. Like I was very happy that this had happened because I'd never, I mean, I've, I've been having that exact same reaction every time I saw a guy from another culture behave in a way that was not appropriate in our culture. And like just having that reaction and, and like, you know, and then, and then like not liking the guy because the guy is like not the way a guy is supposed to be. And, and it's like, and as soon as I noticed that reaction, I was like, wow, like I really don't have any problem with this guy at all. Why, why would I not like this guy? And it's, it's just totally this programming that, that like, you know, a guy isn't supposed to act feminine, right? And I mean, I, I, you know, I would have, I would have told you if you'd asked me, I would have told you, oh no, I'm way past any sort of reaction like that. I'm, I'm like totally woke, and but no. <laughs> so. Yeah, me too. I'm like, how dare this guy be so free? Or I don't know. Yeah. Whatever that's going through my mind. It's pretty funny. Yeah. yeah. Even our concept of what's feminine and masculine is called. I mean. In his culture, what he was doing would be considered masculine. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like in Tibetan culture, it's interesting. Um, so I, I I studied Tibetan Buddhism for a while, and 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 so I, I had some contact with a with actual Tibetans, and b just with sort of the Tibetan, you know, worldview. And they think of men as being loving and kind, and women as being wise and sort of a little bit more distant and so so the idea like like masculinity is where like warmth and comfort comes from and femininity is where wisdom comes from and you know if you if you contrast that to our culture like it's 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 not even opposite it's just different but it's it's like really interesting to see how how much those views clash I would disagree a little bit about the magical Eastern culture. I think that, <laughs> I think that um, you know, the idea that there's only been, I've just been reading uh, Greek philosophy, the Stoics and the skeptics, and the, the, th the thoughts about mind and, you know, phenomenon and non-phenomenon are, are really sort of, uh, you know, similar to Narjajuna in the, you know, same time in the East. And, um, you know, I, as a short example, I use the, in Burma, you know, we have the Tibetan, uh, or excuse me, the forest uh, monastery uh, people, the Buddhists that are leading the genocide against the uh, Muslims that live in Burma. So there's, you know, you can throw everything into a, a, a big basket because we see the uh, deficits in our own culture and, uh, you know, just see the magical aspects of, you know, 
you know, how free men can be and all that. And, and you, you know, I just, just caution about how repressive and, and, uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's worldwide. It's not, it's not, uh, it's not inclusive of any culture. Yeah, just, just that, uh, kind of little addition to the conversation. Yeah, it's definitely, it's not like Asian cultures are, are like better or something like that. It's just, they're different. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's really instructive to look at the differences. They're different and they're not all the same. Hmm? Right. They're yeah. There, there isn't like one Asian culture. There's like, like a lot of Asian cultures and, and they are very different. Like, like I've, you know, I, and, and I used to fall into the trap of thinking that every Asian culture was, was there was a, not that they were all the same, but there, there was a, a huge thread of commonality. And in reality, there isn't. I mean, there, 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 the differences can be quite profound. Um, but, you know, it is, it is really interesting to just see those differences. And, and you know, I, I, I've had the good fortune to actually be able to travel to uh, quite a few different Asian countries. And so I've experienced you know, the way that people are in the world in each of those countries. And, and it's, it's, it's really interesting. I think it's a really interesting insight practice in a way because it, it lets you see how we don't just like construct ourselves; We construct all of the rules around how we, so it's, it's funny to be able to dismantle that through that kind of observation. I'm reading and seeing that freeze about how the self and the story of a life and the story of an environment are all intertwined and dependent on each other. You, you don't have a self without a, you know, this big story about who this self is and what his role in the world is and so on and so forth. Yep. Yeah. There's in the, in the sort of the, the, Tibetan worldview um, that that's put forth in some of the some of the Vajrayana teachings, um, the self is actually the entire world. So, so in other words, like like the, the artificial distinction between what's here and what's there is is considered to be artificial, and and, and your practice can affect um, not just this but that. sounds like what we what we're learning throughout the practice is, is unlearning yes deprogramming ourselves so and when we're looking at things and, and and kind of noticing them and saying okay this is bad well, where does that notion of bad come from and the same with good oh this is a good thing where's that coming from is it coming from and i think when you see other cultures it's not just so this culture is so much better than our culture you're saying okay well things can be different and that can be considered good or, or bad or whatever yeah. and then and then you realize well how much of this is coming from me how much of this is intrinsically true and how much is this is coming from the environment that i'm in yeah also how much of this can i steal like like where are the good ideas in this culture that i can borrow and use in my life because <laughs> you know they're i i think you know steve's steve's comment is exactly right but but you know you can like you can definitely find uh, strengths in, in what you see that's different. 
and uh, you know, and weaknesses. You know, like I wouldn't want to emulate this, but I would want to emulate that. So, what are the ideas in seeing that freeze is that meditation is often about deprogramming, just like you were saying, Mike. We don't want to throw, or we don't want to necessarily throw away um, frames that we've used in the past because we use they're useful and they may be useful again in the future. Just because we want to see through the self doesn't mean we necessarily never want to have a self. A self is very useful for navigating the human world. Yep. So. Uh, I guess, but rather useful in this situation or useful in another situation. Yeah, there's a yeah, tendency. At least we have the, sorry, go ahead, Ted. No, go ahead, Michael. I was going to say, at least we're aware and making a choice of what we want to continue with and what we kind of want to let go of. That, or at least we are observing that it's possible. Yeah, actually, actually, that's a good segue to what I was going to say, Michael, because uh, when I first, so I, I had, you know, my, my, you know, stream entry experience or whatever during the finders course. And after that, I started to notice that I could access my conditioning and, and kind of blow it up, like just, just obliterate it. Um, and I, I did that for a while. Um, and then I started to realize actually this conditioning is here for a reason and obliterating it may not be the right move. And, um, and also though, uh, that wasn't really entirely a choice, which is, which is what I was, what I got when you said that, when you said it's kind of a choice, it really isn't exactly a choice because, um, it's more like you have some priming and you, notice something and the priming and the noticing come together and produce some kind of result, which could be obliterating the thing, or it could be tweaking it, or it could be softening it, or there's all kinds of words we use. And so part of our practice needs to be figuring out, you know, before that happens, like what priming do we want? You know, do I want to just obliterate all of my conditioning or, you know, and, and so that's what's, you know, the evolution over time for me has been to, to notice that it doesn't have to be an obliteration. It can just be a, a softening or a re, reprogramming as opposed to deprogramming. So after you've obliterated a bit of conditioning and realized, oh, that has been in some circumstances, were you able to bring it back? Well, to be honest with you, I don't think that I really was obliterating it. That's just what it felt like. And, and that's what I wanted. Like, like I was like, this is causing me pain. I want it to go away, you know. <laughs> you could also get into obliterating with, um, you know, deep states of jhana where you're, 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 you know, you're stepping outside the bounds of, of uh, you're going, you're exploring non-ordinary states of consciousness. That's, that's yep. another way obliterating the boundaries yeah that seems okay um i think it's yeah i mean it could be very in my view this is just 
you know, I'm speaking from my view. It's it's not just okay. It's uh, I, you know, I'm talking. You know, I always go back as an example to psychedelic trips. You know, that that's what the kind of thing I'm talking about. You know, just for me, it's easy to explain because that's my history. So, but if, where I'm talking about where you're completely disanchored from, you know, reality. So when you're saying, you know, I don't, I'm not sure I understand what you meant by that's okay, because that could be, um, you know, pretty disorientating and, and, you know, there's potential of not coming back and, you know, yes. you know, you know, so. It's, so yeah. I'm not just saying about getting out of the habit of, you know, every day I, I get up and, you know, I do this, I do that. And then, well, I got to, you know, look at life a little different and get out of the habit. I'm talking about, do you, do you want to get down to the level of where you, you know, you're questioning the whole realm of reality itself? And if you do, you know, I'm just saying that that's some of the path that this leads upon you, correct? That in the yeah. deeper level of Jana and stuff, uh, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I mean, have you ever read Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance? Yes, I have. Yeah, so you know, you know what experience uh, uh, Robert Persig went through. That was exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, Jeffrey Martin actually talks about this, right? That you can get into a place where you, um, and like he talks about it in terms of his location. So his theory is the transition from location four to location five or whatever is about this and you get into a place where if you don't have a support network, when you do this transition, you won't be able to make it because you won't be taking care of yourself because you won't see it as a thing you need to do. But then right. there's a reintegration. And after the reintegration, you're able to take care of yourself again. So, but, but you really have erased that boundary and, 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 and come up with a new way to, to be. Right. The whole idea of the sham, shamic, sham, sham, shamanic journey. Thank you. Yeah, right. Yes. Where you have guides and you have the, you know, you know, you're taking ayahuasca and the mescalito. And I'm, I'm actually from my youth, my misspent youth, I was a big uh, reader of Carlos Castaneda. So mm. I'm actually starting to reread it because he fell under disfavor. But I'm finding uh, I am actually from the practice of pure pure awareness, consciousness, it, it reminded me of something from Carlos Castaneda where, um, you know, he's, he's um, experiencing uh, something similar to that. So. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, you're not the first person that I've heard mention Carlos uh, Castaneda recently. I, I haven't ever read any of his stuff. Now I'm sort of feeling like I ought to, but. It's very, it's very dated, very dated, because he wrote it in the 60s, and, you know, they say, sure. people, you know, say he's made up a lot of it, which, you know, very well may be true, but it, it is very dated now, so, mm -hmm. anyways, that's it. I used to read, my, my parents had a bookshelf with all of their 1960s science fiction on it when I was a teenager, and I used to read that, and it was always, it was like going into a different world, and that was only 10 years later. Anyway, uh, we're getting Werner close to Vin. the end of our, what's that? Werner Vinn is a good author to. Uh, Werner Vinge, yeah, yeah, he's awesome. There you go. Um, yeah. Thanks, everyone. Yeah, so, yeah, thanks. So, so does anybody have any last words they want to bring up before we close? I will take that as a no. It's great seeing you all.
see you next weekend.